By the way, I like big Bibles and I cannot lie. All right. So, with that being said, we definitely need to talk about redemption. So, we're going to dive right into the Bible today. We're going to be turning in your Bibles, my Bible, to the book of Genesis, the very beginning, which is also, I mean, excuse me, the very beginning of Exodus, the very end of Genesis. If you're using one of our pew Bibles today, we are on pages 46 and 47. I invite you to turn there. And here is a, uh, a gift from us. If you do not have a Bible that you can read and understand, please consider this not just an art piece in our pews or a relic. We want you to have it. We want it to hopefully get into your hands, but most importantly, into your heart. So please uh, take that. The words will also be on the screen behind me. All right, so we are going to jump in in a moment and talk about redemption. Now, redemption is this big churchy word, right? It's one word that you probably don't talk a lot about, um, aside from using uh, the, the verb of it, redeeming. You might redeem a gift card or redeem a coupon, taking something that has been gifted or has been made available to you and seizing it and using it for its entitled purpose. And usually that purpose is purchasing something else. And redemption in the Bible is, is similar in a lot of ways, but greater in more ways than that. Because redemption in the Bible is about a God who works to provide something for His people in order to save them, in order to rescue them. And when we get into the book of Exodus, make no mistake, it is a book of God's divine redemptive rescue. It is a rescue mission that, that He architects, that He initiates, that He sets forth. And it's a continuation of His redeeming, redeeming purposes throughout the Scripture that will bring us ultimately to Jesus. But we, a few years ago, we did a narrative lessons through, uh, a set of narrative lessons through the book of Genesis, and we're continuing on to the second book of the Bible, into the book of Exodus. But I don't want to just jump in in verse 1. I want to go back to chapter 50 of Genesis, verses um, 15 and to the end, and then we'll go into Exodus to uh, verse 1. So would you stand with me as we honor God in the reading of His Word? First of all, in Genesis chapter 50, verse 15, and going into Exodus chapter 1. It says this, God, speaking to us through the Holy Spirit's inspiration, through the original writers of the text, says this, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said to one another, If Joseph is holding a grudge against us, he will certainly repay us for all the suffering we caused him. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before he died, your father gave a command. Say this to Joseph. Please forgive your brothers, this tr their brother's transgression and their sin and the suffering they caused you. Therefore, please forgive the transgression of the servants of God of your father. Joseph wept when their message came to him. His brothers also came to him and bowed down before him and said, We're your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. 
Joseph and his father's family remained in Egypt. Joseph lived 110 years. He saw Ephraim's sons to the third generation. The sons of Manasseh's son, uh, the sons of Manasseh's son, Makar, were recognized by Joseph. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will certainly come to your aid and bring you up from this land to the land he swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Joseph made the sons of Israel take an oath. When God comes to your aid, you are to carry my bones up from here. Joseph died at the age of 110. And they embalmed him and placed him in a coffin in Egypt. Well, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Each came with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The total number of Jacob's descendants was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation eventually died. But the Israelites were fruitful, increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. A new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. He said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them, otherwise they will multiply further, and when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. Let's pray. Lord God, today I pray that as we have read your word, we would take it for what it is. It is true. It is good. It is holy. It is a gift of grace from you. It is inspired by you. It is perfect. It is inerrant. It is infallible. And it illuminates the needs of our life. So God, I pray that as this comes from you, you would be the one who works and speaks in this moment through the power of your Holy Spirit. And help me just be your servant and help us all be taught by you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So our goal is to help people have a greater understanding of the Scripture. We believe that by knowing the Scripture, people get a closer view at God and they experience his work, his mighty uh, nature, his character, his being, his goodness, his holiness, his justice, all these attributes of God are come by experiencing a knowledge of him in the scripture. And we want to help people uh, to understand that, to grow in that. And so when we do that, we, we have to say, all right, well, then what does the Bible say? When we come together at, as a church, the goal is not just to have some theoretical powwow and to say, well, this feels right or this seems right, or I don't know with that, you know, because we can have all kinds of opinions. We could probably write a book called First and Second Opinions. It would be easy to do that from the various perspectives in this room. But we need something true. We need something good, and God has provided that to us in His Word. So we want to say, see what it says, and then ultimately not what it, just what it says, but sometimes when you read the Bible, let's just be honest, there could be some confusing stuff in there. We want to see what it means. It would, be, uh, it would be totally empty for us to say, I'm going to quote some scripture because the Bible says it, but I have no clue what that means. Not a clue. That would be pointless. It would be fruitless. It would be profitless. So we need to see what it means and, and see that God gave us his word over a time span of history. And in each place, God was revealing his word in a specific way to a specific people for a specific purpose. But he preserved it so that it would still be applicable to us even today. 
So we didn't only see how it, what it says and what it means, but how it applies. And then the last question, am I really going to trust or follow this, or am I just going to view this as a book among many other books? Or am I going to see it as God's Word that is needed in my life? So when we look at these books uh, of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuter- uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy, we see that these books were penned, and, and, and most sources would point back, they're penned by Moses at the direction of the Lord, as, as he inspired these writings to be kept. And the book of Exodus is written shortly after the deliverance of Israel from Egypt and before they, they start recording in the book of Leviticus and Numbers. But it's written to the people of Israel for them to know their history, to be reminded of what God had done because they had a realization. One day these people are going to die. One day the generation that is here will no longer exist. And it is the duty and responsibility for us to to preserve history, to preserve the truth, to preserve this knowledge of God and what He has done and pass it faithfully to the next generation until the Lord fulfills all of His promises, until the Lord has brought about that completion of all things. And so it's written in obedience to God's commands in order to understand who He is and, and what He has done and how He has spoken. And our goal today is to give a launching point for the book of Exodus, to open our eyes to the immense redemptive work of God throughout history, particularly here, but also how it continues today. And so we have to ask this question, if that's our aim, how do we get there? If that's the target, how do we aim for that? Well, we need to have the right viewpoint when we look at the book of Exodus. I've shared this before. I am incredibly nearsighted. These are not just a fashion point. It's not just because, oh, he's got a corduroy jacket, he has the mustache wax and the beard. Um, I bet he drinks locally produced coffee and uh, goes to the farmer's market. Yes, I do those things, just so you know. But these are not a fashion statement only. Uh, they, I do get them because I think they look good, but, but I need them desperately. I am incredibly nearsighted. Once I take my glasses off, my hand starts getting fuzzy in the shape of it once it goes past this point. I, I, that's pretty brutal. And so in order to see things correctly, I need these glasses. And so when we come to the Word and we come to the book of Exodus, what is that lens for us on how to view this in the right way? In the way that would be the most helpful, the most fruitful, the most productive? How do we move it towards our aim to say, God, I want you, you, you've given the, your words for me to see your nature, your character, your redemptive activity. So how am I to get there when I look at the book of Exodus? Well, let's look put the right lens on. The first lens we need to see is the biblical lens, that, that it has a connection and a value with the Bible in total, that these books are not just random selections that have no connection to one another. No, throughout the Bible, there is this scarlet thread of God's work and atonement, as, as some pastors would say, that has stitched together these books according to his will, according to his plan. So when we're looking at the biblical connection, this is the second book in the Bible, so it has to connect to the first and that is the Genesis connection. And these first opening lines, the closing lines of Genesis and the opening lines of Exodus, we see that connection to Genesis. That this is preceding God's work, God's promises, God's plan with His people through the family of Abraham. We see how it ties together that these promises that were made, that even 
God himself had told Abraham that his descendants would live for 400 years in a foreign land. But at the time that God had chosen, he would bring about them out of that land, back into this land he had promised them. It is a Genesis connection. We can't miss out that this ties together. That's why we never need to do this, um, this activity where we just pull out some snippet of text and read it by itself as if it has no place in the broader scope of Scripture. Because you can take a text and just rip it out of the pages and leave it alone, and people can have all kinds of theories of interpretations on what that means by itself. But placed in the right frame as it's placed in God's Scripture that He has revealed to us, we see how it connects to the overall picture. And that is good. That is healthy. That is needed. And it is definitely necessary and essential for the church today in a church where all these different messages are going across, we need it to see it in its broad scope. Not only do we see the Genesis connection, but we see the Egypt connection. More importantly, the story of Joseph. We talked about Joseph a few years back and, and how Joseph was one of the younger of the 12 brothers, the 12 children of, of Jacob. And uh, he was not liked very much. He was favored by his parents, but he was not liked by his brothers. Sibling rivalry at its utmost, to the point that they weren't like, stay out of my room, or anything like that. That wasn't what they were doing. They were like, hey, let's have an idea. Maybe we should kill him. Yeah, that's, that's pretty bad. But then they're like, ah, oh, no, let's not kill him. Let's like make some money off of him. Let's put him into slavery. So that's what happens. And Joseph spends 17 years of his life in Egypt, away from his family, much of that in, in slavery, until in one of those years, God raises him to the right place at the right time. God never left him. God never forsake him in the middle of it and, and kept all of his promises. And Joseph was elevated to a stature of that of prime minister, if you will. Only surpassed by the, the, the authority of Pharaoh himself in the moment. And of course, there was a great famine in the land. And eventually, there's a reconnection to Joseph's family. And Joseph... In that moment, there's a lot of things to go back, and you can go back and read uh, Genesis 35 through 50. It'll give you a good glimpse of that. Um, but you see the people moving to Egypt, and, and God supplies a place for the people in the middle of famine to go to this land called Goshen, one of the, some of the choicest of lands in Egypt. But you also see the patriarchal connection. Not only do you see how they got to Egypt, you see that there's a family that's being sent there and then being called out of there, a people that started with just a few people, 70. And in that, that view itself is just amazing. Because when you think about God's redemption and His goodness and His kindness and His rescue and, and, and His favor and His grace, you probably would not pick the patriarchs. If it were you and I, let's just be honest, we would not pick them. Abraham, well, he's a liar. He lies a lot to try to save his own skin. I mean, most of us do that, so we probably wouldn't say that's too bad. But he does it. Then his wife can't have a child, so they come up with this plan to sleep with their slave girl because they have, they have these supposed rights to do that. So they take over the life of another person only to eventually drive them away because they can't handle their family difficulties. That's Abraham. Then you got Isaac. Well, Isaac, he kind of follows in the footsteps of dad. He, he lies to save his own skin quite a bit. 
Um, there's not a lot really written about Isaac, you know, aside that, you know, he was taken to the mountain by his dad and, and was about to be sacrificed and, and was obedient to his father, so that's a good thing. But, you see, there's kind of an unsettling in the home. And then he doesn't know how to manage his own household because he's like, ah, just do whatever you want to, Rebecca, that's fine. And um, I'm not saying that you should not allow your spouse to have their way. They, you should at times. It's, it's, a, it's a good thing. It's healthy. But he can't have any leadership there. He's a very weak, weak leader. And then he sets up this contentious rivalry because of his favored treatment towards one son over another that just keeps it escalating, keeps it boiling over. Then you got Jacob, who's a deceiver. Once again, grandpa was, dad was, he just continued on. And he's like a, a, a really manipulative deceiver. Runs off with a blessing. All these kind of things. And then the kids that happen out of Jacob are, well, they have difficulties too. Judah, well, he doesn't fulfill a promise. Ends up sleeping with his daughter-in-law to have kids. The one son sleeps with his stepmother. It's incredible. It's the stuff that's happening. So when you look at the patriarchs, you're like, why did God choose them? Because God's redemption is beyond our human limitations. God's redemption is greater and more profound and reaches to the greater depths than any we would set on ourselves or on other people. This is why it's so good. And this is where we see the God connection, that all of this is according to God's plan. That's the biblical lens, to see that it connects us together in what God is doing through the Bible and how this has a, a need in our life. Now, with that question, having the biblical lens, let me ask you this. How much value do you place on knowing what is in the Bible? Because I will tell you, if you're going to have a biblical lens, it means you're going to have to place a value on this that is higher, much higher in regard to other things that we value in our life. Otherwise, we'll say, biblical lens, ah, it's just a book. But then some are skeptical of what's valuable in the Bible. So that's where the next lens comes in. And that is the historical lens. These things, these places, these dates are given so that we can look at the time and look at what was going on. We can look at the location here in Egypt. And it's amazing that all this is happening in Egypt at the time was the greatest superpower on earth. 1446 B.C., 1,446 years before Jesus? Egypt is a superpower. Now think about them today. Egypt's a you know, recognized country. They're one of our allies. But superpower? No. They're just not. But we can look back at the wreckage and see its influence, how it spread throughout the land. So we can see this play taking place that is not happening in some obscure, fa-la-la land that we have no record of. There are other books that consider themselves holy, that say they speak of a time and a place, that there is absolutely no archaeological record of even being in existence. And they claim to have some significant authority in our life and lead many Christians astray. But the Bible is framed in a time that we can actually go back and look and say there's history there. We can see it happening. Now, there are different arguments about when this happened, whether it's an early date or a later date. Some people believe it's 1446 B.C. That would be a 
literal timing of the Bible interpretation. Some believe it's 1260, taking kind of a generational approximation view. But this is the things that happen. And in this historical lens, we got not only get to see the time, what surrounded the people and the location surrounded the people, but we get to see the events work out. We're going to be talking about a lot of events. And this, this just tells us that God not only inserts himself in certain times and places to work his miraculous redemption, but it shows us that God is not passive. God is not passive about his redemption work. The miracles he pulls off to save and, and redeem and oppressed people who are slaves in Egypt is amazing. We should not be astounded when it talks about the lengths that what Jesus went to establish salvation for us to be there. But not only looking at the events, but looking at the shifts. Because of this moment, things are never the same. That's the way history is. Because some immense moment collides in time, in place, and among some events, the ripple effect is different. All of a sudden, the people that were just a small family, when you say small, they were 70, that's a lot of kids, but all of a sudden, what was 70 people become multitudes, and these were slaves, and all of a sudden, they're a nation. That's a shift. That's a crazy change. And so when we look at the Bible, we see God is the one that is able to work in history from a historical point of view to change things in a unique time and way that leaves them different than they ever were before. So we should not be astounded when we ask, if you believe God has worked miraculously in history, do you also believe that he has a purpose for your history now to bring about a great work that in this time, in this location, among these events, that God would use his people to bring about a shift, that things are never the same. We can't have that with having a biblical lens. We can't have that with having an historical lens. The next part is the theological lens, this part about knowing God. And as we look at this, this gives us a greater look at the knowledge of God. This is a continuation of how he has revealed his name, his nature, his character, his quality, his activity, and his holiness and his justice. Throughout Genesis, we have all these different names becoming known, uh, speaking about the same God. We have him called Elohim, powerful creator. We have him called El Elyon, the, the, uh, the, ever, the, uh, the most high God. We have him called Lord, which Adonai. Uh, we get him called uh, um, El Olam, the everlasting God. El Shaddai, the God Almighty, who's, there's nothing beyond his power. We get him called uh, El Roi, the God who sees and hears and perceives. We get him called Jehovah Jireh, the, the God who provides. We get all these natures and revelations of God. And Exodus is not where that just cuts off. It gives us a greater picture of his name. Later on we'll see the, the moment at that burning bush. And, and we talk about that story sometimes around Easter where we watch the little movie where God says, I am. And when we look at that name, Yahweh, which means I am, it means that he is, he was, he will be, and he causes all things to be. It's powerful in potency. And so we have to have a theological view that what we know about God matters. This week I posted an article that came from some research uh, that took place last year. We were talking about that in our, in our group this morning. And in that, that, that 
that, right, that uh, survey that was done across those who considered themselves Christians. It was amazing that a majority of people really believed what we would say is non-biblical, even heretical views about Jesus, about God, about the Bible. And in a lot of ways, it's not surprising because in a lot of ways, people say, well, theology isn't important. Theology really doesn't matter. Well, I'll tell you, if you get a hunger and a thirst for the Bible, then theology is going to matter because it's going to teach you things you did not know about God that you now know and must be held accountable to. And that is a good thing. It's going to show us about how God shows how we may know Him. It's going to show us about God's redemptive work, not only in the life of Moses, but in the life of Israel, among the people of Egypt, among the nations to come. It's going to talk to us about a, a missional movement, that we see this God is not passive. He is active in working out, redeeming people who are oppressed. And this is needed for us. Because we do not need to be aware. We don't just want to seem passive. If we're going to be children of God, people who are called, according to the New Testament, to be imitators of Christ, then that means we cannot escape the missional purpose that God has placed for us. And it's going to show us as we look through this the theological lens that there is such thing as meaning in life. There is such thing as identity. There is such thing as morality. And God has a plan for those who will be called by His name. And what I love about that, when we get to this moment where we talk about the Ten Commandments, and we're going to spend some, some good quality time there, um, is that God doesn't say, all right, Israel, you're a bunch of slaves in Egypt. I'm going to give you a bunch of rules. If you can follow them, then I'm going to take care of Egypt for you. That is not how it works. That's not how any of this works. God says, I am God. I am gracious. My name will be known throughout the nations. I am going to do a work to redeem you because I have loved you, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. And because of that, these are the house rules. After I've done this, I've already done this to rescue you. Now I've shown you how to live by people called by my name. That's a lesson for all of us, that God doesn't leave us whenever He saves us as purposeless. But He doesn't expect us to follow a bunch of rules that are impossible for us to follow on our own. He says, I provide the rescue. I provide the work. I provide the redemption because I am on mission to save a people who were lost and enslaved. But as people who are redeemed, there is a plan. There is a point. There is a direction if you are to be faithful. We need to have a theological lens to know that what we learn from this matters. It has a meaning. It says something to us. And it is to be applied if we are going to be faithful. Fourth lens is that of the Christological lens. Not only is the theological telling us something about God, but the Christological. Because the Old Testament, every bit of the Bible is pointing us ultimately to Jesus. Every bit of it. It's pointing us forward to looking at Jesus. And just as Israel, we're going to be see, is, is saved from something for something. They're saved from slavery to be God's special people, to make His name known. We too are saved from something, slavery to sin, to be a people called by His name. That we're meant to edify and elevate and echo the name of Jesus. That He doesn't do this senseless. We are going to see that just as Israel 
was also saved by the blood of a lamb that on that night of Passover, as the video talked about earlier, that, that this was God's way out, His redemption from death to the firstborn that was going to come on all the people there, but only those who would trust in the blood of a lamb that was spilt and innocent for their sake would be saved. So we too are saved by one who sheds His own blood for our sin. There's a Christological view here. We also see that, that just as the people of Israel were saved and would be wanderers in the wilderness on their way towards a promised land and must be faithful in that meantime till God fulfills that whole promise for them, so we too are sojourners. That God saves us and says, there's a promised land that awaits us. There is a place that I'm calling you to, but I'm asking you to be faithful in the wilderness. You must have that Christological lens. I want to ask you, how much value are you placing on that in your life? When it comes to what God has given us in His Word, when it comes to what God has done in the moments of history, when it comes to what God has done through His Son, how much are we giving view of when it comes to Jesus and the Gospel? That when we look through the Bible, man, it just points to the fact that, wow, this, this whole Gospel thing, it's pretty important. It's a pretty big deal. Like, it, it means something. It not only changes me, but it matters. I probably better know it. And since someone took the time to share it with me, I probably better share it too. And I probably better not wait till they come to me. I probably better be active like God was and go to them. It's going to matter when we talk about the gospel. The gospel itself is redemption revealed because it talks about the holiness of and nature of God. It talks about the offense and slavery of sin. It talks about the sufficiency of Christ who died in our place. It talks about the personal responsibility to be faithful and trust in Him. It talks about eternal urgency that there is a land that is promised and it talks about life transformed because of what God alone can do. It's a mirror picture when we look in the book of Exodus. So let us not forget that we're not going to go to a place where it says all that New Testament stuff doesn't matter right now. That Gospel stuff doesn't matter right now. No, we're going to echo the Gospel through and through as we have been doing and we will continue to do because it matters. We must see this through that lens. And lastly, we must see it through the practical lens. It's good to have little noodles and wrinkles in your brain occur because we've studied the Bible. It's good to know something more about history. It's good to have a theological grounding and foundation. It's good to know about Christ and how the Bible echoes Him. It's good to have the Gospel application, but we also need to know that this is going to be practical for us. Why should I be here? Why should I devote my time? All those things are good, but when the rubber meets the road, whenever I'm going to put my feet to the pavement, whenever I have to go clock into my shift on Monday morning, how is this going to affect me? Why does it matter that I know this beyond just my holy duty as a servant of Christ. What is the difference it makes? That's the difference it makes because it reminds us and reveals our need for an ultimate liberator, a freedom bringer, a redeemer. It's going to bring us back to that. And if we need it, because sometimes we set ourselves on this high pedestal, well, I'm a Christian. I go to a Baptist church. We sing real good music. And it brings us back to that humbling moment that says, 
I need a liberator. I need a freedom bringer. I need a redeemer. It helps us look back on the world and say, so do they. And how will they know if no one tells them? And could it be, could it be that God is so big, so mighty, so on mission that he placed me in this place for such a time as this? How could it be that, God, you would do that? Because he's God. And he brings redemption through his people. To his people. It reveals our need and brings us back to that level ground. It reminds us of our need of a provider, that regardless of how we try to attempt things by our own skill, our own means, there are times where you're in utter desperation and God does not leave us. And even in times of, of weak and fear and, and grumbling that take place, God does not leave us. He provides for His people. In the most desperate of times, in the most prideful of times, God still provides. It gives us a view that all good things come from His hand. And so those good things that have been entrusted from His hands to ours, we're not to look at them with neglect and abuse and say, this is my toy now. I'm going to keep it. It's going to be mine. No one else will have it. No, we're reminded, God, I have nothing were it to come from Your hand. Help me share it. Help me share it. It's going to remind us of the lawgiver that when it comes to the holiness of God, there isn't a call, a call and an expectation that applies to our life. And this is why we do what we do. It's going to reveal our need for a shepherd, someone who will walk with us and never leave us or forsake us. Paul, the apostle in the New Testament, he speaks about the Old Testament to the readers from Corinth. In the letter to 1 Corinthians, he says this about these, these writings that have been preserved for us, why we need them, how practical and useful they are. When he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, he says, these things, and he's speaking directly about the people being delivered in Exodus. He says, these things happen to them as examples. And they were written, get this, they were written for our instruction, on whom the ends of the ages have come. Now, I don't know when the end of the age is, but I know that every day we get a little bit closer. And God says, I've made this for you. I've provided for this for you. This is why it's practical. This is why it's needed. That it happened to them, but it's useful to you. Don't let go of it. And as you see these practical things that are going to be revealed in this practical lens, this instruction, you're going to see some lessons to us about what it means to be sure that we take care of the unborn. How despicable and deplorable this world had become for which Israel lived in the midst of Egypt. And it's going to show us that that was wrong. It's going to show us to beware of the evils of racism and murder and identifying and saying, I'm a people, they're not a people. It's going to show us how God can use weak, ordinary people, that Moses wasn't some superhero. But he was a weak 80-year-old man that believed God. Hesitantly, but he believed him and followed after him. We're going to show the, the seeing the importance of singing God's praise. That when God does something, man, make a new song and tell about it. That's worth celebrating. The song that we're going to look at, it's weird. I'll admit that. But they were like, "Woo, God, you did that. Let me sing a song. Man, if anybody has something worth singing a song about, man, church people do. 
Not because they sound good, but because God is good. We're going to see the understand the nature of true community, what it means to live among a people together, and, and how that can be hard at times, but God has put us together for such things. We're going to see a reliance on God's daily presence as He provides. We're going to see what it means to delegate and take counsel from other people's godly wisdom that are placed in the right time. We're going to see what it means to obey God's Word because it shows His will. We're going to see what it means to take seriously the issue of idolatry and what true worship calls us to do. This is why this is a practice. This is practical. Over the next five weeks before we get to the Christmas series, we're going to be looking at this first part of Exodus as we talk about oppression and revelation and confrontation and God's demonstration and what it means that He's our substitution. These are all ahead. And I pray that you will join me on this journey because the story of God's redemption of the people of Exodus, it's our story. It's our story, and it needs to be other story. We've got to pass it on to them. We've got to share it. We've got to be engaged. And I'm inviting you to, to come along with us and go back and look and be in awe and wonder that, God, wow, you did this. Show me what I need to do to reflect your glory and your goodness because I'm not worth it, but your grace is amazing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, today as we uh, take this moment to pray, I, I don't know how you may have worked or, or, or what you're speaking on the people in this room. I only know what you're telling me and that is, Man, I have still so much more to learn and so much more to do and so much more to follow when it comes to you. I have so much to be thankful for when it comes to you. God, there are so many things that I sometimes take for granted and you remind me of that even when I'm here. That I'm not saying I'm someone that's above anyone else in this room. But God, I know that it can be too that just as you're working in this pastor's heart, that you are possibly working on someone else in this room. And I don't know who they are, but I'm just asking God you to work on their heart in a way that causes a shift. That they found themselves in this time, this location, among whatever event. But I'm praying for an encounter with you, seeing you and what you have done amongst others, you can do in their life. So God, be the shift bringer, be the redeemer that you are. Show us what it means to trust in you, to follow after you, to call you, Lord, to identify our lives after your heart, your direction, your mission. And in this moment of response, God, let that be what takes place, appropriate response to who you are. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray this prayer. Amen. I'm going to ask this time, we have a time of invitation. I'm going to ask you to keep your heads bowed, your eyes closed. Each week we do this because we set it at the forefront. The Bible is something that tells us what it says and what it means and how it applies, but it also begs the question, what are you going to do based on what God has shown you in the Word? We know it would be easy just to walk away and think, well, I, I wanted to respond, but I didn't know how. So we give this moment to give you the opportunity and try to give some instruction on what that might look like. Today, if you're in this room and, and you're saying, man, I need that redemption. I, I, I need God to be my liberator, my provider, my, my lawgiver, my shepherd, my Lord. I need peace with Him. And you recognize that you need to be saved. You can do that. Because you can trust what He has done. 
That can take place because of what God has done to bring about redemption. The Bible says, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. They do not get turned away. And if God is pressing on your Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit to draw you to do that, you can trust in Him today, first by admitting that you need His grace, that you yourself are a sinner in need of a Savior, that all of us have sinned and broken the law of God. But you are calling out to Him say, God, only you can redeem me. I'm, I'm admitting you that I need you. But you're also believing that Jesus is that fulfillment of redemption. He's the one that brings all the promises to you. That He is the one who came, who died in our place and rose again. You believe that He is Lord. And lastly, by confessing His name, confessing your need for salvation. Saying, God, I, I, I'm calling upon Your name to be saved. I'm calling on Your name to follow as my Lord. The Bible says that this is the way of salvation to believe in your heart and to confess with your lips. If that's you today and you need to talk to someone about that next step and saying God has pressed on my heart to trust in Him and I, I, I'm moving forward and surrender to do that. I'm going to be here. Maybe that's not your case. Maybe there's something else on your heart that you're in prayer about that you need to come to the steps and pray about or pray about where you're at or maybe you need someone to talk to. Maybe it's you need to be scripturally baptized or, or you need to unite in church membership or, or there's some type of mission. I, I don't know. I don't want to exhaust everything, but I know that God knows and He's impressing your heart. Take that next step with Him. I'm going to be down here at the front should there be any other thing that you need someone to talk to about, need encouragement or prayer. You follow as God would lead you to follow.